and they've done the studies on the productivity on that, right? When people are seeing, you know, in a way that really, re- we know when we're validated authentically, we know when someone truly sees us and when they don't. I mean, that's, that's, we just have that ability to, to, to know that. And so when somebody is giving us to your point of praise, somebody is really praising us and seeing us for who we are, that connects us with ourselves in a in an authentic way, which then creates this intrinsic motivation to want to show up more as that. Welcome to the Leadership Junkies podcast brought to you by Cartavera, the leadership development ecosystem that helps you grow your people, grow your business and grow your life. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Tracy Phillips, who's known as the innate coach is with us. And the title is head heart and gut, leading with all three of your brains. We're going to talk about how critical it is to understand that we actually have three brains, both personally and as leaders. We have our head brain, our heart brain, and our gut brain. We're going to talk about how they work together, how sometimes they don't work together, how important it is to understand them so that we can open up our thinking, our decision-making, our communication, our innovation, everything we do as people and as leaders to integrate all of these different brains and the information that comes from us and also some of the information we get from them that may not be trustworthy. It is going to be a fascinating conversation of a path to discovering and unleashing your innate self and your innate leader. Junkies podcast, where we explore leadership, business, and personal growth to help you grow your business and live a richer life. We're your hosts, Jeff Dishwitz and Craig Matthews. We believe that leaders have to put their people first. And if you don't have time to grow your people, then you're not leading. Get ready for conversations that will challenge your thinking and help you transform your leadership and your business. Welcome to your bigger business and bigger life. We are thrilled to be back here today, and I am personally thrilled because we have a very dear friend of mine, Tracy Phillips, with us. I was able to see her, what, just a couple of months ago. We got to have dinner when I was in North Carolina, and it was a wonderful conversation, which we will have more of today. <laughs> so Tracy is, um, okay. well, I'm going to start with her book. Her book is called Looking In, Discover, Define, and Align the True Value of Your Life, Leadership, and Legacy. And her business is called Innate. She's known as the Innate Coach. And she helps leaders, visionary business owners and leaders, learn better communication, resolution strategies, decision-making, and how to lead through difficult times, challenging times, high-stakes times. I don't know if any of that's happening right now in the world. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry, every day today. So Tracy is here at the perfect time for what you need to amp up and amplify your leadership in today's very chaotic world. So welcome, Tracy. Thank you, Jeff. It's so, well, you know how much I love spending time with you, but it's it's nice to be with you and Craig today. Awesome, Tracy. Yeah, great to have a fellow North Carolinian and especially somebody that's really close by. So <laughs> yeah, Right, we can actually meet for coffee. <laughs> yeah, right. So Tracy, give us a little bit of the Tracy Phillips backstory. So as it relates to what I do now, you know, my first career was as an elementary school French curriculum developer and an instructor. So if wow. I were to extract what I learned from that, that I use today is it's it's really listening and translating. Mm. And those are two things that, you know, I didn't realize, I, you know, we sometimes say, oh, I learned how to do that. 
But since I found that it's an innate trait of mine that, you know, I, I listen to patterns in language and I can decode and and help, uh, you know, extract information that people are literally without knowing communicating to me. Uh, and so that's what I, I, I use kind of is my superpower, my one of my main superpowers in my work today. But as far as leadership, you know, I started out actually in coaching um, holistic health. And I was probably in that field for a couple of years before I started to realize that I was getting bored. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a I'm a bit of a, that visionary person. And so, you know, we tend to to hop around and we want more and we want faster. And, you know, we're like the racehorses that have to race. And it just wasn't it wasn't kind of the environment uh, that I wanted to be in. But I had two clients that were movers and shakers, as I call them, the racehorses and rock stars. And they had been uh, previous uh, athletes, really high end athletes, and they were kind of in a little blip, you know, needed to get back on track with their health. But what I found was their personality traits were those that I really wanted to work with. So I kind of started to hop over into the life leadership. And uh, soon after that, I, I got this download uh, that I originally started getting when I was in high school. They would come as book titles. And this particular one was The Conscious CEO which was almost nine years ago, conscious leadership was just on the fringes of emerging. And yet I knew it was something, it was a trend that was, was going to become very front and center. And I started to think about what that book, if it were written, because these downloads would come. And at first I thought they were books had been, you know, suggested to me. So I would go looking for them <laughs> pre-internet <laughs> at the bookstores and the libraries and they didn't exist. And so at this point in my life, I knew it, it, it was this idea, but I thought about the main leaders of, of big corporations and organizations. And if they had had this transformational coming home moment, what would that mean not only to them in their personal lives and those closest to them, but to their leadership? And if they were really truly, you know, that impactful in a capitalistic society, that's kind of what runs our culture, you know, impactful, what would that, how would that change the impact they were having on entire industries and cultures? And I, I knew that was necessary. And about two weeks after that, I was offered an opportunity to uh, co-facilitate a men's transformational program at Butner Federal Prison and did that for three years. Hmm. And that was when I worked with ex-executives and really got into that, you know, the, the, the arena I'm in now. Um, there's nothing I could have done, you know, credential-wise that would have taught me as much as I learned during those three years. But um, helping facilitate their coming home experience really was incredibly eye-opening and um wow. has has led to my passion today wow i would imagine that would be one of the toughest transitions you know going from war to coming home and then going from prison to coming home those both seem like really big transitions yeah and you know it was interesting we joke about it like even the men would joke about it you know that they would call it spa butner because you know so many of them came to realize you know through through the program itself that they they got a second chance, you know, so I mean, what had gotten them there, you know, and that's a lot of what we talked about is, is, you know, how did you get here? Because you delivered yourself here, <laughs> no matter what story you think you're telling about, it wasn't my fault, or, you know, everybody else is doing it too, I just got caught or whatever it, it was, you know, you your choices and actions led you here. And so, you know, if you stepped out of where did you choose to start stepping out of integrity, consistently enough that that would happen? And so helping them back to those choices, you know, and recognizing that they're the creators of their lives um, through not only the choices they make, but before that, the stories they tell uh, themselves, how they communicate internally 
um, that really was an eye-opening experience for them. And it was, again, like I said, incredibly fulfilling to be a part of that, um, you know, to help them to recognize that, you know, being your own inner leader, you know, personal leader is, is more necessary, you know, than, than it is focusing on how am I going to lead others? Totally. So, so Tracy, you said something really interesting. You tied it to your first career in build, building French um, courses. You told yourself a translator. Mm -hmm. Talk more about that for yourself, as well as what that looks like for leaders. Yeah, you know, I often say that we're most challenged on our greatest gifts. And so early on in my life, you know, I, I actually have a have a delay in in uh, my my communication. You know, so as a kid, you know, I, it would take me a couple seconds once a teacher would tell me something or somebody was feeding me information to, to process that translate it, so to speak and then be able to respond. And so that linguistic delay was something I always thought was, you know, wrong with me. Um, and, and what I recognize today is that I'm listening on multiple levels, you know, back then it wasn't just that, you know, quick response because I wasn't just listening with my head brain, you know, I was listening with all three of my brains and probably other, other parts of me as well. Um, and so to incorporate in, and integrate all that information before I could respond was really what that quote unquote delay was about. And, you know, so my, my struggles with that, you know, I think it's, I always say we almost have to leave our lane. We have to, to go out. The men used to say this as well at Butner. I had to go out of integrity to find out what my integrity was, you know, what, what it was to be in integrity. And so for me, that, that was a, a, a an unfoldment, a discovery, you know, is that I, and it was, I remember actually the day I went back and told my middle school French teacher that I had gotten my master's in uh, curriculum development and instruction for French. I thought she was going to have a heart attack. I'm not even kidding <laughs> because I was honestly the worst kid in French class. I went to a private school, all the rest of the kids just, you know, you know how it is. We're like everybody else, you know, they take to it easily. And I was definitely not a fish in water on that one. Um, and yet it made me persevere. And, and I, and it, it did allow me to find this gift, this innate gift that I have, because I think if I hadn't been challenged, um, you know, again, we don't know what we, what we have until we're challenged in it. So, so wow. I don't know if that answered your question, but. What well, does you, you actually have something you, you referred to it as innate. I just this morning finished the next chapter of my next book. And in it, I was talking about something you have innately which is building the leader pause into our leadership mm -hmm. and the ability because that pause allows you to process to um, not only process what you heard, but also how you might respond and all those things. And, and one of the things we've talked about is leaders are so often reactive and that's the problem. It's the reactive and how much they would do differently if they just had that moment to pause and you have it built in. So, that's like, what amazing gift. That is so true. What you just said. And, and you just get gifted me with something that, again, I wouldn't have seen. This is the beautiful thing about being able to, you know, have mirrors in others where, you know, they're going to see the things that are blind spots in you. And, and I never, that never occurred to me, right. That, that this didn't, you know, as, as my gift to translate language didn't occur to me either. It was, it was the woman who was facilitating the program or the one who had created the program at Butner that pointed out, that's why she wanted me to join was because I had this innate ability to what she called language profile, 
And I didn't know what that was. <laughs> she goes, oh, you're a language profiler naturally. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, so I like that a lot. Thank you. And that is very true. I mean, if nobody learns how to respond instead of react, leaders need to learn that. Oh my gosh. Yes. Now, when you you're talking about listening on multiple levels, you, you even use the term three brains, which, which three brains are we talking about? <laughs> so that's a body of research that I became fascinated by a number of years ago when I was in a body talk session and the practitioner, I don't know if you're familiar with body talk, but it's a modality um, that helps use our body's own innate knowledge of what's going on with it to communicate with the, with, with, with the practitioner. So they use muscle testing, you know, to answer Oh yeah, okay. questions and that kind of thing. But anyway, it came up and she was talking about my three brains and I'm like, my three brains, what's that? She <laughs> says, well, you have a head brain, a heart brain and a gut brain. And they actually have been scientifically oh, yeah. found to be, you know, this is a, this, this is a real thing. Um, there's a book actually, I think it's Karen Jensen is her name. She's an ND naturopathic doctor. She wrote the book three brains and um, there, there are these uh, you know, these cellular structures in our head and our heart region and our gut that communicate back and forth. And what they found is, is that each one of these brains um, receives information from, from the inside and outside world differently. So, you know, the head brain has got a VIP status, you know, that the heart and gut brain don't and, and, and true of the other brains as well. So they can only pull information from certain areas. So the, the, that access point is what, what that brain is in charge of, so to speak. And so I, I look at it, I remember actually telling the men at, in prison, you know, the concept, sometimes you had to translate it in their language to get them to understand the relevance and, uh, you know, these guys were all incredibly powerful and had had these successful careers. And so I knew that information was important to them. No, being in the know was important to them. And so when we were talking about the brains are like, oh, my heart brain. And isn't this nice? And I said, well, look, this is the way I look at it <laughs> is each one is an information gatherer. And let's just make it easy and say that if, a, a, you know, a whole three thirds of the amount of information that's available to you, each third can be accessed by a different brain. If you're only operating from this brain, that means at best, you have a third of the available information. Hmm. I don't know about you, but I'd like to have three thirds available to me. So that's why I'm developing all my brains. And they're like, oh, okay. Yeah, well, that makes sense. <laughs> I want to know three thirds. <laughs> definitely. So Tracy, give us the quick overview of each of, I mean, I'm sure it's much more complex, but the simple version of each of those brains, like the head, the, the head, heart, and gut, what's the core essence of each one of those? in terms of the information that's processing? Well, when it comes to communication, which obviously is my thing, there's certain words that are linked to each one of the brains. So the head brain is thinking, right? I think. The heart brain is feeling, I feel. And the gut brain is sensing, I sense. So a lot of times I'll ask my clients, what are you feeling right now? And they'll respond something like, well, I'm thinking that no, not what right. are you thinking? What are you feeling? Right. Yeah. That's, and yeah. I do the same totally thing, right? <laughs> where do we, I can always find where people reside most yeah. in, in their information and what they're working from based on that language. So there are a lot of exercises I have my clients work through to start to refine their ability to understand the information that they're gathering from these three brains, because we are gathering information all the time, whether we're aware of it or not. But if we're always up here, we're not going to be acknowledging the information that's coming through in the other two brains. 
Um, and so just helping people refine that ability to, you know, build a relationship with each of their brains um, so that they know they, they have more of a conscious understanding of how to work with that information. So I have a theory, Tracy, I loved your feedback because you, you've done the research. So my theory is in those three brains that fear exists in the head. Yes. Uh, I mean, I guess there, I guess I could envision a couple of more startlement that might be gut, but primarily the fears exist in my head. Do, do those other, I guess you're nodding your head and not everybody sees it, but do those other brains, the heart and gut brain process fear? And if so, if so, do they do it differently? They do process it. Um, it's, it doesn't, to your point, it, it, it does reside in the head, you know, so the interesting thing about fear. So in the body, um, from a chemical standpoint, the body doesn't know the difference between excitement and fear, hmm. right? It processes, it, it processes each chemically the same, right? So you could be a person who loves roller coasters and you're getting ready to go up, you know, to the, to the pinnacle of that top part of the roller coaster. And you're getting so excited. You know, somebody else like myself who maybe got conjoled, you know, to go onto the roller coaster and realize that was the <laughs> worst idea, starts getting towards that pinnacle point and is like freaking out, right? It's the same experience. The information in the brain is, oh, I'm getting to the top of this roller coaster and I'm about to go over the edge. But the story we're telling ourselves about that experience is what then is informing the body of whether that is a fearful reaction or whether that's an excitement reaction, right? Something that, that wow. you know, our adrenaline is, you know, is certainly the adrenaline is kicking in either way, um, but that's something that's pleasurable or something that's painful, right. right? So the head is really, you know, there's this very simplistic diagram that, you know, I, I was actually just doing a three-hour facilitation last week for a group of, of nurses uh, they have a leadership forum that I was invited to speak at, and it was all on innovative mindset. And my biggest piece with that is always you create your own stories and that creates your reality, right? Because yep. that is where it starts. So there's a circumstance or a happening, right? A trigger, let's say, in the out, from the outside world or even in the inside world, right? Something happens internally with us. And immediately we, the next thing that happens is we have a thought and those thoughts start to string together and create stories. Well, that those thoughts and stories are what then creates the feelings that we have, right? Because that's what informs whatever feeling it is. If it's a story of, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. We're going to have right. that feeling, right? That's in alignment with that. The opposite is also true. Those feelings then result in actions and those actions then become the results or, or the outcomes that we create. And so we don't have any control per se of, of the circumstance itself, but everything that happens right. after that, we have 100% control over. We frame we it. We frame it. We frame it and therefore yeah. we then experience it. Right. And we can, so I guess the whole thing about neurolinguistic programming is, is being able to reframe a particular experience as well. Is that that's true? Does that work with some of the stuff that you deal with? Absolutely. Yes, it does. And so to you know to go okay. back to the original question that Jeff asked about the 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 heart and the gut, you know, is with mm -hmm. fear specifically, is that the stories all reside in the head, right? <laughs> right. You know, we don't really have storylines in our heart. Our heart is fluid. Our gut is fluid. Um, it's this part that's more static, and we can create in mindset switch, you know, Dr. Carol Dweck talks about in her book, Mindset, you know, growth mindset versus fixed mindset. Right. You know, we, we have the ability to work with that, 
But if we're on autopilot, most of the time, we're working from those pattern stories that we've been telling over and over. Some of them are working for us, good share of them aren't. And so it is then those are the things that are informing from a fear perspective, you know, what's filtrating through the heart space and, and to some extent through the gut space as well, because the fight or flight response that starts first here, I am being chased by a dinosaur. Ah, I must run, you know? Um, the instinct. You look so young, Tracy. <laughs> yeah, right. Thank you. It's genes. Um, but no, it's it, it it's it's that gut instinct piece is first for a fraction of a second informed by the story that the brain is saying. It, it's funny you talk about the thinking because so often people will say, whether it's a coaching client or a friend or anybody, will say, "Oh, you know, I think I have to. I'm, you know, I have, that's a good point. I have to think about it." And my reaction is, oh, my God, don't do that. (laughs) And they'll say, why not? And I said, because can you agree with me that the source of your fears and your stories are in your head? Yep. So you're going to go there to try and figure this out when that's where all the trouble started. I said, that's like the alcoholic says, I need to quit drinking. I'm going to go to the bar and get drunk. That's it. And so I I think it's the definition of insanity, right? you know, as, as approaching it with the same mindset that created it, you know, and thinking that we're going to get a different outcome. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause, uh, when I was in Puerto Rico last week, my wife and I went to El Yunque uh, rainforest mm-hmm. and we went through the hike and we started going through and, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of roots and mud and all sorts of things, but it was absolutely beautiful. And my wife decided to stop where we were at kind of this pool. And I went on to, you know, continue climbing and go down the sliding rocks and so forth. And when I got back, I was like, so why didn't you go? And she said, well, you know, I didn't want to twist my ankle because then we were going to go to old San Juan and I wanted to go through that. And so she was all in her head about this stuff. So to your point, Jeff, you you know, that that fear was all here in the head. And yet she was she was able to have a great time anyway. Mm. So. Uh, so Tracy, let's talk about an, a core, I would say, I would call it a corollary of fear or maybe an outcome of fear and the three brains. This is really fascinating to me. To me, one of our defaults as human beings is protection. And I think it's pretty safe to look at behavior and say, there's probably a form of protection in it. Well, f- fear and stories live in my head is the, is that default mode of protection also in my head? And do if so, do I have protection mechanisms in my heart brain and my gut brain? Ah, those are good questions. You know, so I keep thinking about this monkey study that I remember reading about a number of years ago. And they talked about how, you know, we develop through ancestral training, um, you know, certain predispositions. And so, you know, they were trying to introduce something to a monkey population that they didn't already have knowledge of, right, in order to test the theory. And so what what happened was they, I think it was something to, if I remember correctly, it was something to do with washing the bananas before they ate them. As they were somehow able to, to teach the, the adult monkeys that they needed to wash the bananas, you know, that they gave them or some other food, I, whatever it was, it was something that they didn't normally either eat or do. And as the, you know, obviously this was a lengthy study because we had to wait for generations to come along, but as the next monkeys came along, now this was not something the monkeys did prior to being taught how to do it. The babies started to do it, right? Started to, as they got old enough to wash their own food, they started to wash the banana. Just modeling? 
And, and so you could say it was modeling, but see, there's the kicker is they separated them at a certain point. And so the parents weren't modeling for the babies. The babies were just doing it innately. Wow. (laughs) And, and they've done a variety of different studies like this, you know, showing that, you know, when, when this information gets, I mean, and we know this about fear. I mean, we, we, they've done the DNA studies where trauma is passed down generations. And so that's where we can find ourselves in a situation where we're responding to something and we not, we maybe haven't had any experience with that. Snakes is a good example. You know, not all snakes are poisonous. How is it that that the largest population of people are afraid of snakes, even if you've never experienced a snake before? Well, that they say has been passed down through our DNA, you know, as people have experienced or had you know, an ancestor experience a snake bite or a bad experience with a snake that gets registered and then passed down. So then each generation has that fear embedded in them, even if they never come across a snake a day in their life. So these are all things that, you know, how does that inform inform the heart? Well, I'm guessing I don't have any significant data on this, but I'm guessing that if we were to apply that same concept to the other brains, you know, that any woundedness you know, uh, when it comes to emotional woundedness can also get passed down. Right. So emotional wounds, I know in family constellations work, which I'm very, you know, familiar with, we definitely see that we see that, you know, um, these, the strange thing that happens where patterned tendencies follow from the emotional standpoint. So let me give an example that, you know, maybe a a parent, um, abandons a child, uh, at a young age in one generation. And you see, sometimes it skips a generation, but you see that same pattern continued each generation, where if it's not the child, you know, that had been abandoned, becoming a parent who abandons, you know, some situation in their child has a situation, you know, or they, they become a parent that abandons, but you see this pattern develop and continue down the lineage. And so healing, you know, that woundedness is a heart based situation. It's not a head situation. And that's what family constellations does is it, it helps heal from the heart base. Um, and so from a gut standpoint, I'm guessing the same thing. You know, if it's instinctual, we talk about instinctual reaction. The same thing with the bananas or, or you know, instinctual stuff based on fear that has happened. We might build up then tendencies as, you know, as a species to have certain instinctual responses as time goes on. Wow. So let me dig a little deeper in that. Um, this is a really interesting conversation. As you were saying that, I, I get the emotional wounds, but what came to me is, but does the heart actually, the heart brain actually do the protecting mm-hmm. or does the head brain do the protecting from those emotional wounds? And I, where I think it's important is where is the work, right? Because in other words, what I'm saying, what I'm hearing you say is, if if the head is the source of the protect, the fear and protection, and we do the work around the stories, and and then if we do the healing around those, it seems to me, feels to me, I sense there's all three of them, that that work would address the other brains as well. Yes. Absolutely. And I do see that in family constellations work, because when you take away the thing that the head feels it needs to protect against, there's no need to protect. Right. So as you heal that, that woundedness in the heart, for example, 
that familial wound and that ancestral wound that gets passed down. When you heal that, when you're able to go back and, and, and as they call it in the work, you know, give back the burdens um, that there is no more need for the head to protect those areas because they're not wounded. Right. So, yes, I agree that, that the protection piece does does come from that head space area. I mean, I think there again, there are certain self-protective modes, just like our body, you know, has its own protection you know, orientation when it comes to fighting disease and and pathogens and all those types of things. You know, that's not something we have to think about. That's something that's just, you know, already incorporated into our system. So we do have protections of all kinds. But when it comes to really literally, you know, um, warring up, you know, putting on the battle armor and and I'm going to really have to block and tackle, you know, that concept, the, the fear response, you know, does come from the head area. Right. So if there's nothing to respond against, if there's nothing to, you know, that the that the head is picking up from the heart that it needs to protect. Then it doesn't. So so let's let me ask you a question that goes right to the, the leadership role. And, and for this point, this question is about someone who's got opportunities to lead others. And we all do to some degree. So when it comes to the, the head, head, heart and gut. Obviously, you're suggesting that leaders, it's important for leaders to start to understand that on themselves, their heart, head and gut, their, their heart, head and gut brains. That's number one. That's one area. Another area potentially is that they start hearing and hearing and listening from those three as well and what they hear from others, right? That's correct. And then a third layer would be as leaders helping your people understand that. Do you see that as really on the leader's plate or is that the work those people need to do on their own? I I feel it's both. I mean, it's, it's a reciprocal type of thing. You know, I mean, we each take responsibility for what we're creating in the space we're in. And so when it comes to culture, I mean, that's everyone's, I'm going to say everyone's job, right? We all collectively create culture. Um, and, and so it, it, yes, I think from the leader standpoint, I always say, you know, the leader, it tends to be the, the first one that notices that something needs to be addressed. <laughs> so it might be that CEO in a company and it may not be the key piece is that developing processes and procedures, right. An environment that's conducive to people being able to bring things forward and have innovation, you know, be embraced, um, is, is most important. Right. Because, you know, I always say with value, you know, we all have value and we all want our value to be valuable. But the the key piece I always find, too, is oftentimes the kicker that people don't think about is that we, you know, once we establish our value. Yes, I know this is my value. I'm very strong in that. And we know where it's valuable. We may be environments that aren't valuing it. Right. We're not valued. So that third option of creating environments that are going to allow for these things is also incredibly critical, right? So I think that that when it comes to, yes, it always starts, and that's why I talk about leadership as being the self. It's not just the leader of a corporation, although that's where I focus because those are the people that are already making, you know, they're influencing a lot of people and they're influencing all the things I just mentioned. And so starting at the top, it's a lot harder to get the rest of it working if those at the top are, are not on board. I think you're you're absolutely right. There, there's one aspect that we've talked about before, which is the microculture mm-hmm. that we create. And so, even if you're not the top leader or you know running your business unit or something like that, 
even within a smaller group, even if you're not the quote unquote leader, but you're somebody in there, you can help to create the right kind of culture, you know, that microculture within your, your team that you're supporting other people, you're, you're helping to identify where people's superpowers are. Mm -hmm. And if, if you just think about the, the power behind that, if you had an organization, entire organization, where everybody's superpowers could shine, I mean, how, how awesome would that be? Exactly. Well, you know, and you just said something, Craig, that's really important. And that's, you know, and it's something I mentioned in my talk about innovative mindset, is that some people like visionaries are already kind of preloaded with this natural tendency to just think innovatively. They can't help but think innovatively. Mm -hmm. But it right. doesn't mean that those of us who aren't pre-programmed with that can't develop it, right? It's like a muscle. Right. And I think to the, the point is some people are like, I'm not a natural leader. Well, again, that's a story you're telling yourself. Right. And that could be blocking your ability to be whatever level of leader, even if it's just leadership within yourself in your own life, leader to yourself, that you could potentiate, right? That you could actually get closer to your potential by not telling yourself that story. We categorize and put ourselves in boxes all the time. And that can really limit us from being able to develop these things. Um, and my mother always taught me when I was little, she, I remember, the, and I talk about this in the book. I don't know if you remember reading this part, Jeff. When I shared it with you, but um, my mom's main thing with me was teaching me to always leave things better than I found them. Mm, so and good. the and and the lesson I remember was in a public bathroom where she was taking mm -hmm. extra toilet paper and picking up pieces of paper off the ground so that the stall we left was clean, even though when we entered it, it wasn't. And she says right. that next person will have a different experience than we had. It will be mm -hmm. better. So, so good. and 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 so I'll never forget that because I, I might have been like five, maybe I was very young. Um, but that is something that I, you know, still do. Today. I taught my daughter the same thing <laughs> in times of COVID. People are like, oh, God, put put gloves on that child, um, you know, but but I think that what it what it shows is that when we have that mindset, regardless of whether we're, you know, super innovative or the leader and CEO of a company or what, you know, we're we're looking at our life you know, experience through the lens of what can I do? Not what can, I can't do, but what can so, I do? So important. Yes. Right. That, that will lead things in the, in, in a forward way, you know, in a, in a forward direction. And I think oftentimes we can do a lot more than we think that we can. Yes. And so that's where, you know, getting a coach or, or having an outside perspective helps us to see some of those blind spots where maybe we have some self-limiting beliefs. Oh yes, we all do. <laughs> We're all yes. operating, right, Jeff? We, we find that all the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Tracy, one of the things we talk about a lot around in terms of leadership at whatever level or position or not is the role, the key roles of vulnerability and empathy. Mm -hmm. And so can you talk about those, especially in the context of the three brains? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, I mean, it, it, you know, when we're talking about fear in the brains before, you know, when we're in a constant fearful state, it's, it's, it's near to impossible to allow ourselves to be vulnerable. And we can't access our own compassion within. So it's going to be very difficult to also ac access our empathy for others. And so it's really this shutdown position that we place ourselves in when we allow ourselves to loop through these. And again, we'll go back to saying it's the stories in the head that we're choosing to tell, whether it's an unconscious choice or a conscious one, it's still choice. And so really in order to be vulnerable and, and, and pull from that, because I think it's a natural state. It's the natural state that we have babies 
you know, babies, little children aren't, aren't worried about protecting themselves from what others think until they learn to do that. Yeah. And so as we develop these fears, you know, the, the greatest thing in uh, Adam Grant, who I don't know if you're familiar with, with Adam Grant, but he does, he, he did a lot of research on visionary tendencies or, or innovative thinking. He calls it original thinking. And he talks about originals. What they do is they have this ability to separate self-identity from idea identity. So they're much more willing to throw their ideas out there without fear of those ideas failing. Right. right? You know, it's, it's my, it's, it's, and, and this is how he puts it. He says, they can say my idea is crap and not feel like they're crap. Where right. most of us, 85% is the current data. 85% of people who have great ideas don't speak up, don't share those ideas wow. for fear that that idea will not, seen, not be seen as a good one and that will reflect on them. Wow. Yeah. So they, are, they feel like they are a failure rather than their idea. Correct. We, identi- we self-identify with the, with the things that we produce. And I really believe it's because when we're born, at that moment of birth, we're stripped of our innate identity our innate value. And we're told you're not valuable unless you produce something valuable. So our identity from that first moment gets tied up in what we produce, right? And ideas are something we, you could look at it this way, we produce. And so if we feel like that is, you know, if I produce something valuable, it all hinges on whether I'm valuable, Mm -hmm. then we will have that fear. So first and foremost, it's about working with that piece first understanding that it exists and then deconditioning ourselves and that's a lot of the work i do is is what i call deconditioning from those it seems beliefs. like that's a huge thing that we need to be thinking about as parents as well is yeah. as, as our kids are starting into new levels of of school like your daughter's about to go into high school we need some deconditioning in there and just saying look you know I value you for your character. I value you for just who you are rather than, you know, the specific things. And that's been a, a big part of my parenting is, is just making sure that my boys know that part. Mm, that's beautiful. Well, that right there, I think is, is probably the greatest gift you can give as, you know, mm. as a parent is acknowledging their true gift, right. To the world, yeah. which is them. Right. Because from I always say from that place, then we get to decide how we deliver ourselves into the world. Right. How we mm-hmm. how we define that value for ourselves and how right. we deliver that value into the world. Right. So it's not about what the world expects of us. It's about what we have to offer the world. And standing yeah. firmly well, in that place. Agreed. I think there's one other thing that and I think Jeff and I have talked about this before. It's when you when you give somebody a compliment, it's like. Tracy, I really like your environment. Oh, no, no. You know, I, I wish I had this. I wish I had that. Right. And, and I, I have to stop and look at the person in the eyes and said, look at me, you know, and, and we connect in the eyes. I say, I really like your environment, you know, and the eyes get big and they're, they're like, they're not sure how to handle that yeah. because they're not used to being seen. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's so important that we we help people understand that they do have value and that when we say things, when we when we compliment them, it's not just some surface level thing. Absolutely. Well, and I think we've been very conditioned to this thing that goes like this. It's better than to give than receive. <laughs> 
which I call BS on every time. I'm like, it is not better to give than receive. It's equally important to give and receive because if we don't receive, we have nothing to give. And And I believe if you can't receive, you can't fully. That's exactly it. Agreed. Or it's going to be coming from a a place other than where you want giving to be coming from. Yeah. Yep. So this is a great conversation about praise. If something that hit me and I've thought about it before is, I think one of the problems with praise is it, it's given, it's often given genuinely. Mm-hmm. It is, but it's given in a way that it's the message is conditional. Mm, wow. In that, I'm going to praise you. You did an awesome, you're awesome because you did something awesome. Yep. And if, if I'm only giving people praise for that, then there, I think the message is so as long as I keep doing awesome things, I am valued. But when I don't, then I am no longer. And now I have to keep delivering awesome. And I think that's the part that is being, I think we don't praise enough. Yeah. And then when sure. we do praise, we end up connecting it to some achievement. Mm-hmm. So the value is in the achievement, not in their innate who they are. Mm-hmm. And I think if leaders could change leaders, and I'm talking about every human being and leader now could find the place to see the beauty in people every day and remind them of it. Oh my gosh. Yes. Trans you talk about transformation, yes. talk about healing. This is, this is healing the world kind of stuff. And people totally. go, Oh, really? No, I, I really believe that. Yes. I agree. Well, and they've done the studies I mean, on the productivity on that, right? When people are seen, you know, in a way mm-hmm. that really, re- we know when we're validated authentically, yep. we know when someone truly sees us and when mm-hmm. they don't, I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's, we just have that ability to, to, to know that. And so when somebody is giving us to your point of praise, somebody is really praising us and seeing us for who we are, that connects us with ourselves in a, in an authentic way, which then creates this intrinsic motivation to want to show up more as that just the same as praise of what we're doing will continue to reinforce our thinking that we have to do to be right. I have to do this to be that. Right. But if we're being if we're being praised in who we are being, then that is going to also similarly support that beingness and our desire to be more of who we are. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. If you enjoy the Leadership Junkies podcast and you want to grow your leadership, We have a new course for you called Become a Confident Leader. In this course, we will share some of the keys to becoming more confident in your leadership and also to become more impactful. Go to cartavera.com slash confident to find out more. See you on the inside. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back. I think you've really, really highlighted something here, Tracy. You said it a few minutes ago. I want to bring it forward. 
you talked about finding the little wins. Yeah. And I, I feel like the little wins, finding them is important because if you only look for the big wins, you're not going to have a lot of praise. But I think it's also vital because the little wins are where I can give that appreciation that's not tied to something big so that the, mm -hmm. the validation only comes when you create this massive outcome. And I do believe that we have been and probably a deeper, a deeper conversation culturized as a people that only big wins matter. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, I think back, Craig, you talked about parenting and I, I encourage everybody who's a parent now, whether your kids are little or grown to notice the ways that the praise is really conditioned. Yeah. Like when you kid, your kid gets uh, the great report card and you give them the high five, but they get the average report card. They don't get a high five. Mm. They get nothing. They may not get criticism. That means, well, I've got to have the great report card to be seen. Absolutely. I remember advice given to me years ago before I became a parent. Um, and this was from a friend of mine who, who had many kids of her own at the time. And she said, you know, when those kids start bringing home, you know, trophies, report cards, whatever, it's not even asking them what they think. What do you think about this? It's asking them how they feel. Yeah. Right. Which goes to the conversation about how, how do you, how do you feel about this? Whether it's a straight A report card. So how do you feel about this? You yeah. know, or whether it's straight C's or a combination of all the above, you know, it's how, how do you, how do you feel? Not how do you feel you did? How do you feel you performed? But just how do you mm -hmm. feel about this? Because again, she said, you know, one of the things that in order for our kids to have an identity where they're self-identifying, they're basically choosing their own identity and not a conditioned one, is to start to develop how they feel about themselves. Yeah. It's amazing how, how adaptable children and, and even, you know, teenagers can be um, just asking those kind of questions. And that's the kind of question that helps them to see why they want to change their performance. Yes. I mean, I, case in point, one of my sons, you know, was a little, little above average, but not certainly not going to his best. And just asking that kind of question helped him to say, oh, you know, and then framing it in, in perspective after that. Okay. So you feel like you didn't do your best. Okay. When you look forward and you think about where you're going, the, the education that you're getting, some of those grades may matter. Some of those grades may not matter so much. But your next step is to get into college, and the grades matter to get into college. Mm -hmm. And college allows you to have a different kind of experience for the rest of your life. And so just helping them to understand those different pieces, the context of that helps them to then make those decisions. My son then said, wow, okay, I don't want the job at McDonald's. I want a professional job. I choose to go to, to college. I'm going to make the changes to, to my grades. Mm -hmm. And he did. That's it. That's, that's in the intrinsic motivator, you know, because there's yeah. something that they're connecting with that matters to them. I mean, we matter to ourselves, right? you know, right. and I think yes. that when we get to my, my daughter Good was point. saying the other day, you know, she says, it, it just seems like more and more kids are, are feeling like they don't, they don't matter. You know, she's always been this high empathy kid. You know, she always made friends with the ones that, you know, were kind of left out. And, yeah. and so she's always kind of been that, the one to, 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 to kind of bridge that gap. But she's, you know, she said, 
I feel more and more of, of kids my age just don't realize how they matter. And she says, that really worries me, mom, because everybody matters. And, and she says, I, I, I don't, I don't know how, I mean, I try telling my friends you do matter, but I know that me just telling them is not going to get to the root of how they feel about themselves. Yeah. And they did, you know? And so I, I, I feel that that's, that's a really important piece is that as we, we learn and train ourselves to these things we're talking about, um, that we give we model that and give permission for others to do the same. I wonder, you know, we, we've been talking about how we say things to people and we're, we're in our heads during that. And I just think about the connection that we make at the heart level. And the very first conversation Jeff and I ever had when we met, what was it, Jeff? On hugging, right? Oh, the, yeah, that one. <laughs> Which conversation? And Jeff and I are huggers. And what I found is, I don't have to say anything. I can go up to my son, my wife, whoever, Jeff, and just give give a hug a longer than expected. And it just says, I'm here with you. Mm-hmm. And that makes such a big difference, I think. Yeah, it, it, it does. So Tracy, I want to address a question that popped in my head. I'm guessing there's some people are going to listen to this and hear part of the conversation about the parenting and the leadership correlations, and they're going to go to this place. (laughs) Oh, so you're talking, this is the mindset that everybody gets a trophy. Mm. Mm. So can you, I know I could, but can you separate those two? Because I think there's this belief that there's this way that's about winning. And then there's this way that winning doesn't matter. And oh, that doesn't work. So that's why we don't win. So Mm -hmm. can you speak to that? Well, I think first and foremost, what I know I'm talking about and I feel we're talking about here is helping, we're talking from a parenting's perspective, helping our kids to truly come to recognize who they are and why they're valuable. Because I always look at it as a puzzle piece, right? I mean, my analogy is that each of us is a, is a unique puzzle piece in the world puzzle. And when we're trying to fit our puzzle piece into the wrong place, you know, and this is always my brother when we would do the, the puzzles at, during the holidays, you know, you get snowed in, especially in Colorado, we get snowed in a lot. You know, you get snowed <laughs> in and you take out like the 2000 to 5000 piece puzzle and you spend the next two weeks putting it together. <laughs> and my brother didn't have a whole lot of patience. I mean, he's four years younger than me. And so, you know, he didn't have a lot of patience with that. So he would be always the one that you, you would see trying to jam the wrong piece into the wrong hole. It's like, well, it's close enough. It's like, well, <laughs> that throws the entire puzzle off. But that's what happens is when we tell ourselves, and this is what the men at Butner said, is that I, you know, when I really got into diving in and asking them if they had always dreamed of being who they became, most of them said, no, it was quite the opposite. They wanted to be a rock star or, you know, some sort of musician or artist, and they became a CEO because they wanted to be powerful and make a lot of money. Um, Mm -hmm. So it really went against their true identity. But I think what we're talking about here is a self you know, it's a, it's a discovery and a realization and an ultimate defining and owning of that puzzle piece that we are and where we authentically fit, as opposed to just saying, oh, we're celebrating everybody for just being. Now we're helping the process of people developing their true identity so that they don't end up in that wrong spot, because not only do not, I not fit, in that wrong spot, guess what? I'm also blocking the person who does need to be there where that, that, that spot was made for. 
they can't get into their spot if I'm in it. And so, you know, as we all take our quote unquote rightful places, everything works out better. So I think it comes back to if we look at the 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 infinite game versus the short game. The short game is I win, right? Correct. Or you win. Right. It's a it's a it's a competition. The long game, the infinite game is really we we play so that we can continue to play. Yes. And if we're we're able to recognize somebody's brilliance and regardless of what they've done, but just they show up in a certain way, there's there's a lot of value in that. And to your point earlier, Tracy, as we talk about their their goodness, their you know what what their character is, and we we see them, it helps them to reinforce those positive aspects rather than just harping on the things that they're not doing. Absolutely. Yet. You said it so well. I would agree with that. And going back to what Jeff said to me earlier, when he says you have that natural leadership pause, he gifted me with something I had never considered about myself. And so now I'm going to incorporate because it, it resonated as true. I'm going to incorporate that. But, you know, I've also had people come up and, and do that in a less positive way, telling me what I really stunk at. And yeah. that also resonated as true or what I wasn't doing in a certain way. It's like you're trying to be this, but I see you being better at this. You know, and as I really allowed myself to get out of ego and, and, and integrate that information and, and really, again, had that felt sense that what they were gifting me with was was truth that I could either stay in my self-righteousness and, and not benefit from or I could incorporate and, and, and grow from. That, too, was equally, you know, helpful and beneficial to me developing this sense of self. Well, I think you've opened the can of a whole nother conversation, <laughs> this important one. I really do, which is about, you've talked a lot about reconditioning. You talked about redefining. And what's coming for me is redefining winning. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. I think we're still, as a culture, deeply entrenched in some old definitions. Because what I've started asking people, well, they'll say something about winning. I said, well, why do you want to win? And no one to this date has been able to answer the question. Everything they tell me is a version of a story from someone yes. else. You know, winning's important. Well, I don't want to be the opposite. Yeah. What's that? A loser? Well, no, they're <laughs> not the opposite. It's a, so if we can redefine winning and if we could start looking at what is the cost, what has been the cost of winning hmm. and maybe ask that question, what's the cost of winning the way I'm thinking about it? And am I willing to pay that cost? Mm -hmm. Am I willing particular to inflect, inflict that cost on you because you're around me? Am I willing to pay that price to win? Mm -hmm. If we could, if we could take that pause and start asking that question, I think that's an, a, a, a new conversation, perhaps. Great point, Jeff. Oh, redefining so and asking the question about what is winning and what's the cost of winning. That is so great because that's very akin to asking when the child brings home, you know, the report card, how do you feel? Right. It's, it's really asking deeper questions, you know, uh, not just how do you feel about how you did, but how do you feel in general? How do you feel about uh, just where you are in life? How do you feel about, I mean, it can open up all sorts of things because I agree with that is that even the answer, what's most important to you, winning is a conditioned response. <laughs> and when did we ever learn to win? It was only, you know, when we were at war and it was about <laughs> staying safe. 
for our meal. Right. Staying safe. Win the battle right. With the, the lion so I could eat. Yeah. I don't really have to win the battle at the grocery store. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Or yeah. over the toilet. I just paper. don't want the lion to win and eat. <laughs> Although we do that at the grocery store, don't we? We did it during COVID. Oh, gosh. Yes, I got to right. get this food. Okay. I need to get 10 times what I need so I can make sure I win at this game. I, I feel yeah, secure. Survival. You know, whether it's security yep. of knowing I'm fed, whether it's secure that I know that I'm on top, whether it's secure, it's all about security. So, you know, I said this in the book, the question isn't what do I, what do I need to do in order to feel secure? It's who do I need to be? Mm, yes. And I think that's where we get to flip the script is that what within me do I get to focus on being? Right, getting more in tune to my head, heart, and gut, understanding how I'm communicating, what stories am I telling? Like, that's the being aspect in the discovery yeah. process. Identity is huge. And that wow. I feel like because you know, our entire culture has conditioned us to be reliant. That's how we have value. That's how we've learned to be valuable. If you're reliant on me, I have value. Right. As a coach, if you're reliant on coming to me and you pay me for that, I I have value and I can continue, you know, to to, to be valuable in the world. So this, this codependent reliancy model that we've been fed has kept us being reliant on ourselves. And I don't mean in every aspect because we're here to work with each other, but I mean that core sense of self. If I need the outside world to validate me in whatever way, whether it's a certain number of dollars in my bank account or a certain relationship or a certain you know, status, if I need that to feel secure, I will always feel insecure. It will never be enough. So um, uh, we're running out of time. So I want to put, right, let's try a bow here. I'm going to try a bow. So my takeaway from all of this, especially the last bit, Tracy, is that if I choose to live and lead from my head, just as it is, I will be committed. I will have a codependent relationship with my own fear and my own stories. And my pursuit will be of safety and security that's not even real. Oh, that's beautifully done. You are so brilliant at that. That is such yeah. a zone of genius for you to take something at like, I don't know how long we've been talking over an hour, you know, and succinctly put it into that detailed of a, a targeted focus. I mean, it just absolutely blows me away when you do that. Yes. Nice. Brilliant. Brilliantly done. <laughs> so with that, so Tracy, we we're so grateful that you were here. We always want to make sure our guests have a chance to promote or highlight something. Uh, I'm going to guess I know what that is, but I'll <laughs> leave that to you. Well, you mentioned it. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, it's, it's. Um, I mean, this this book looking in, that's going to be out in in mid-September. So you can find it on on Amazon then, you know, has has been has been a baby that I've birthed, you know, over, well, since 2020. Um and it was kind of an oopsie baby too. On top of that, you know, I I, I wasn't planning wasn't planning on having that baby, um, but I really owe so many people, um, you know, the the support that they have offered me, you know, to see that this this work has you know has come to its its fruition. So yes, that that is what I'm probably most excited about uh, coming up, and would love to share it um, with. Uh, with the audience, it certainly talks about a lot of things we discussed today. Um, I get into all sorts of, of deeper thoughts about some of the things that I that we were talking about. Um, so if you know this conversation interests you, you might very well be interested in the book too. <laughs> awesome. 
Well, we will certainly share that and spread it around and spread the love. Uh, what is the best way for people to connect with you, Tracy? Well, and I'll say really quickly for those of you, just if you only want to pick up the book, uh, just read the foreword that was written by our very own Jeff Nietzsche. <laughs> it's well worth that read. Um, he gifted me with that as well. So the best way to reach out to me is I love sending people to my website because it's a wonderful way to just see everything that I'm up to and what I offer and, you know, all that fun stuff. And that's the innatecoach.com. But I also can be found on Facebook, um, LinkedIn, Instagram, you know, I'm, I kind of show up occasionally in those places as well. So it's, it's a way to follow what, what I'm, what's going on and also to reach out. You know, I love hearing from people. I also have a, I don't know if I'd call it a podcast. Um, this is a podcast. I, I, I still, Woolwin and I are still trying to figure out what to call what we do, but we, <laughs> we do a bi-weekly conversation called eavesdrop in the morning, in the moment. And uh, this kind of started around COVID time where we would have these conversations bi-weekly with one another. And one day he said, we should share this with the world. And so we went live on Facebook and we have a Facebook page where we can be found and people can listen in live to those every two weeks. Oh, great. Awesome, Tracy. We always wrap with a question. And today, my question for you is we're going to go book. Mm. What's the book of the many you've read and know about? What's the book our listeners need to read? So I thought about this book off and on during this conversation that we were just having. Mm -hmm. And it's called Yes, You Can Change the World. It's a, a small parable book, less than 200 pages. Um, it's written by a man named Aman Matwani. And it is one of the most in, inspirational books I've read because it is about that very thing where we can, we're all leaders and we can all make an impact. Um, the concept is, is a beautiful one and that, you know, any human being has the ability to change the lives of many other human beings. And we're doing it all the time, in fact. And so to be more consciously aware, you talked about conscious leadership, being consciously aware of how we're leading our lives uh, is not just for ourselves. It's for all the people whom we're, we're impacting at every moment of, of, of those lives. So that's, that's the book. I just love it. I've read it so Thanks many times. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that, Tracy. Thanks for giving us the gift of you today and uh, most importantly, the work you do in the world. Likewise. Yes. Thank you both for having me. If you enjoy the Leadership Junkies podcast and you want to grow your leadership, we have a new course for you called Become a Confident Leader. In this course, we will share some of the keys to becoming more confident in your leadership and also to become more impactful. Go to cartavera.com slash confident to find out more. See you on the inside. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast, Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.